Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to this installment of the Post-Cold War Grand Strategies of the United States interview series. My name is Luke Phillips. I am a senior correspondent at Glimpse from the Globe, and I am joined today by Professor James D. Boyes. Professor Boyes is a political historian at the University of Richmond in the United Kingdom, uh, whose research focuses primarily on the Clinton administration's grand strategy and President Bill Clinton's efforts to craft a new grand strategy in the new post-Cold War world era. Uh, Dr. Boyce, welcome and thank you for being with me. Oh, it's my pleasure, Luke. Thank you for having me. So, uh, so to start off, uh, uh, let's, let's just look at the world that President Clinton entered into it, uh, when he took office in 1993. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, the, this was around the time Francis Fukuyama had published the end of history thesis. Uh, and there was a lot of reason for uh, for believing it. There were democratic transitions going on in various parts of the world. The Soviet Union had collapsed. Uh, the United States had just uh, led an international coalition against Saddam Hussein to enforce international law. Uh, so these all these world historical events were influencing, uh, I, I would assume, the uh, the ideas behind the Clinton administration. Can you give me a a brief overview of what was going on in Bill Clinton's head in terms of how do we restructure the world order? And how do we uh, adjust U.S. foreign policy for a post-Cold War era? Well, everything you've just said is true. And, of course, it still wasn't enough to guarantee President George H.W. Bush's re-election, uh, which is remarkable in hindsight. You know, I think it's, it's, it's interesting how H.W. Bush's presidency is looking better and better and better the further you get away from it um, for a whole variety of reasons. But what was telling, it must be said, is the sense that the people closest to Bill Clinton believed fundamentally that it was foreign policy that helped cost George Bush his presidency, that he was the foreign policy president and not a domestic president. And that was exactly what Bill Clinton didn't want to be. Uh, he had no great aspirations when running for the presidency to be seen as a grand strategist, as a foreign policy president in the like of, uh, of a Nixon, say, for example. You know, he wanted to focus upon the domestic economy, uh, and the people around him were very happy to do that. His foreign policy team on the campaign trail were very much a subsidiary of that campaign, um, you know, very much sort of like almost kept out of sight, if not quite out of mind. Um, people like Tony Lake came on pretty early, uh, but was very much on a sort of a, um, a part-time basis because he maintained his position up at Mount Holyoke in Massachusetts. Uh, he helped draft a number of early speeches for Bill Clinton, including a very important one at Georgetown in December 1991, which helped give Governor Clinton some credibility on foreign policy, when it must be remembered that all the other Democratic candidates were, were refusing to talk about foreign policy because it was quote-unquote unpopular. Um, his first main foreign policy hire was Nancy Soderbergh, who had previously worked for Ted Kennedy's office, and she was really the only full-time foreign policy member of that team coming on board in, in June, I believe, uh, and working out of the, the, the Little Rock, Arkansas head office, whilst everybody else kind of remained part-time. Um, even during the transition, you know, Tony Lake doesn't come on board um, and was really quite surprised to be offered national security advisor because, you know, I don't think he really wanted to return to government service and was had to had his arm twisted, and I think he was very concerned about the, the private costs, and indeed, you know, it almost certainly helped destroy his first marriage to his first wife. Um, so, you know, what's Bill Clinton thinking? Bill Clinton is primarily focused upon the domestic economy, upon trade issues, 
and uh, realizes that as a potential commander-in-chief, he will need to think about the wider world. But he does so, uh, and he's brought to do so effectively by his advisors through the route of markets and trade. And that is why you see um, markets and opening free markets at the heart of what becomes Clinton's grand strategy, because it's what he understands. And it's also, it becomes clear, a way for his advisors to get him interested in a subject which he is um, not disinterested in, but he sees it as a potential diversion away from what he sees as the main focus of his presidency. It is not true to say Bill Clinton wasn't interested in foreign policy or foreign affairs um, at either a political or a policy level. This was someone who had gone to Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. He'd been a Rhodes Scholar. He'd worked for Senator Fulbright's office. You know, he understood um, at, a, at a theoretical, at a practical level, issues of U.S. grand strategy. But he did not want to make it the focal point of his presidency um, at any one point. And certainly when he does come to face it, initially at least, it's something he certainly grows into. But certainly in the first years of his administration, he sees foreign policy and foreign affairs through the, the prism of markets and opening foreign markets to American goods and services. That's interesting that you that you bring that as the basic uh, uh, the basic uh, reference point for President Clinton, uh, because you know I think uh, most people would agree with you that Bill Clinton's presidency was the globalizing presidency. Uh, yeah, if, sure. uh, if, uh, if George W. Bush was the uh, was the uh, democracy promotion presidency and uh, President Obama was the retrenchment presidency, if we're going to put a caricature yeah. on it. Uh, then Clinton was by far the globalization presidency. And so that reflects itself in a lot of the trade deals that, was si- that were signed, um, the, uh, the North American Free Trade Agre- Agreement being the most famous and in some places the most notorious one. Uh, but there were other trade deals too. Um, and so how, how much would you say Clinton really crafted the world order of uh, open trade, the Doha round of trade talks, and uh, using – American military force and American power in the context of international institutions like the United Nations and NATO rather than in uh, specifically just an American context? Well, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> let's just see. Um, let me see if I can break down one or two of those things. Yes, George W. Bush has gone down as the democracy promotion president, but let's not forget democracy promotion has been at the heart of most American presidents' foreign policy since at least Woodrow Wilson, who, of course, pledged to fight the First World War to make the world safe for democracy. Uh, many people are surprised to learn that one of the, the three strands of Clinton's foreign policy, the, the, uh, uh, the triangle policy almost, uh, we've talked about trade and free markets, and that's certainly one of them. The other was enhanced national security and making sure that there was a strong defense. The third was, guess what, democratic promotion. Um, you know, the the enlargement of engagement and enlargement was an abbreviation of democratic enlargement. So that was Tony Lake's uh, aspiration as as, as uh, national security advisor. So the idea of, of uh, it's kind of like they likened it to, to the domino theory in reverse. As the communist command economies withdrew from Central and Eastern Europe, American goods and services and democracy and markets would move in. Um, and they likened it to a ratchet policy of, you know, let's, let's put this ratchet in place so that we can't have slippage backwards. You know, give the people access to democracy, access to markets, 
and they will kind of buy their way into demanding complete liberty. And that's kind of where we see Central and Eastern Europe now, I think. Um, and I don't think Clinton gets the credit for that. Um, you're absolutely right with regard to globalization. But again, it's important to remember, without taking away from what Clinton does, is that there's, there's another element to it. And, and this was something which I can bring right up. You and, you know, you're alluding to it, but I'm going to make it explicit. Last night in the debate, uh, Donald Trump referred to NAFTA as, I think he said, the worst trade deal that's ever been signed and blamed Bill Clinton for it. It staggers me that Hillary Clinton, as smart and as, and as pretty good debater that she is, has not at any point turned around and said, well, listen, Donald, you're a Republican. Guess, guess which party negotiated NAFTA? That's right. A Republican administration under George H.W. Bush. Sure, my husband signed it, but he steered it through a Congress. And who did he get to support it through Congress? It was passed entirely with support from Republican members of the Senate over the absolute objection of Democratic senators because the unions and their representatives in the Democratic Party led by Richard Gephardt, who, I'm not, who was you know, um, Speaker of the House, um, was abundantly opposed to it. So NAFTA passed over the objection of the Democratic Party and with the total support of the Republican Party. So Clinton believed, I fundamentally believe, <laughs> that at a base level, what he was proposing, both domestically and foreign policy-wise, would gain bipartisan traction. Because on a trade issue, he believed he was advocating a, you know, a centrist, moderate uh, trade package that George Bush had basically negotiated, and he could pass with Republican Party support over the objections of his Democratic Party. <clears throat> From a, a foreign policy point of view, you know, you were talking there about the use of institutions. Well, think about it. Um, the big success of George H.W. Bush's administration is the Gulf War, okay? And his brilliant use, along with Jim Baker, you know, one of the most successful double acts as a Secretary of State and a President in U.S. history, in my opinion, of coalescing a true coalition at the UN, including nations from very diverse backgrounds, to come together with a unity of purpose of expelling Saddam from Kuwait. Now, that is a classic example of assertive multilateralism, as far as I'm concerned. It is America asserting itself on the world stage, saying, as Bush said himself, this will not stand, and bringing together a coalition, a multilateral force, behind a UN mandate to implement U.S. foreign policy effectively. Now, what Clinton wants to do initially is continue that. And his U.N. ambassador, Madeleine Albright, coins that assertive multilateralism. Now, what she is proposing is exactly what George H.W. Bush had done successfully with Republican Party support when he was president. And what you see as soon as Clinton uh, uh, talks about this is the new Republican Party that has taken charge effectively um, and will form and coalesce around Newt Gingrich, suddenly think this is unacceptable and talk about a threat to U.S. sovereignty and farming out U.S. foreign policy to the United Nations. And it's nonsense. I mean, it's just classic partisanship. What was fine under Bush yesterday is now totally unacceptable under Bill Clinton. And I think they were shocked. I think they were absolutely staggered that there was so much pushback um, certainly you get a new generation of Republicans coming in in 94, you know, which at the time seemed, you know, like they were crazy right wingers. Now they seem moderate, it must be said, by some of the, 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 the you know, the classic idea, isn't it, almost of the, 
of the baby killing the mother spider sort of thing. You know, they, and even Gingrich, of course, becomes a victim of it eventually. They start eating their own. You know, I mean, look where we've got now with it. It's crazy. You know, we almost we almost hark back to the good old days of the Gingrich years. I mean, who would have thought that was possible? Um, but of course, they they saw George H. W. Bush as the last gasp of the centrist internationalist Republican Party that, oh, my God, would be welcomed back on the world stage now, quite frankly. Um, so, you know, Clinton, yes, the globalization president, he alludes to it, you know, in his inaugural address. Um, he ushers in this new era of breaking down borders and barriers, says explicitly in his inaugural address, you know, there is no foreign and domestic policy anymore. You know, this is they're all one and the same. And that, I think, is, a, you know, a, um, you know, he wasn't the first to say it. Let's be honest about it. You know, he's like Madonna. You know, he gets ideas and popularizes them. And that's fine. But, you know, he's someone's got to do it. And Clinton does that very, very well. Um, and so, he, you know, it's not it's not true to say that he invents these ideas, but he takes them to a whole new level as president and makes them official U.S. policy. What's fascinating, though, Luke, is if you go back to the last National Security Strategy Review document that the Bush administration puts out in January 93, days before Clinton takes office, if you read that document, it doesn't read like a Bush administration document at all. It reads like a Clinton document. Um, and it's remarkable. You know, the language is similar to what Clinton will talk about. Um, you know, so, you know, the question you have to ask is, well, if Clinton hadn't won... Would Bush have gone down that route anyway? Or was the language in that report being tailored to accommodate the kind of, you know, the, the segue into a new era effectively? I guess we'll never know. But it is it is interesting that Clinton certainly wants to uh, utilize um, multilateral, multinational organizations to aid in um, the execution of U.S. foreign policy. And he starts off wanting to use NATO. Um, and again, trying to put this into a later context, you know, certainly internationally, W gets a lot of pushback for abandoning the United Nations and ruining the United Nations, yada, yada, yada. But we need to recognize that the, the move away from the UN towards NATO begins years before George W. Bush becomes president. And you can, you can look at the Clinton years, I think, and certainly what happens with Bosnia as a classic example of why that is following hot on the heels of Somalia. You know, Somalia was a UN mission that um, lots of people dropped the ball on, it must be said, let's be fair about it. But, you know, Boutros Ghali was very, very quick to try and blame the Clinton administration. Um, the, um, the events in Somalia tainted the UN in the eyes of the United States and vice versa, it must be said. But then when Russia blocks any moves to, uh, to try and do anything, it must be said, against Serb aggression in Bosnia. You know, the U.S. suddenly realizes, I think, that there is a, an institutional problem with the U.N., which negates it being the vehicle of choice for its foreign policy. And it's at that point you start to see a shift towards a real embrace of NATO, uh, where, of course, the U.S. is sure one of a series of multilateral partners, but it's, you know, the most important one. Well, when you bring up the Bush administration, one of the things that I uh, that I uh, that I think about a lot is that 
Um, no, nobody really remembers the pre-9-11 Bush administration mm-hmm. foreign policy, but the pre-9-11 Bush administration foreign policy was, uh, I could, I would argue in many ways, a refutation of the Clinton, uh, of what was perceived to be the extremes of the Clinton foreign policy. Yes. George W. Bush said, we will not do nation building anymore. Oh, we will go oh, yeah, yeah. away Absolutely. from that. Uh, and, uh, and so it seems to me that the, the, the absence of mod- the kind of extreme version of that, um, went, uh, was kind of what led to the pendulum swinging all the way to the other side after 9-11, uh, and, uh, it, after the invasions of, uh, of Iraq and Afghanistan and after the, um, uh, the, a, a, an administration that had wanted to be a domestic policy administration primarily when faced with massive international challenges, did not have a game plan for how to play foreign policy, and so wound up uh, almost shooting from the hip. I think that's what a lot of people would say what happened with the Bush administration. But, but back to Clinton. Um, you, uh, let, let's go back to uh, to Clinton. Well, so, just hold your, oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Let me come back on that. Because okay. you're, you're right. Um, Governor Bush actively campaigned and, and said so stridently in the debates, you know, now 16 years ago, hard to believe, quite frankly. But, you know, he pushed back against the assertive nation building, the arrogance of the Clinton Gore years, saying, you know, uh, you know, this is all on tape. You know, it sounds conspiratorial, but of course it isn't. You know, if, if we're an arrogant nation and we go around the world saying, do it this way, the world will hate us, um, you know, suggesting that. Gore and Clinton wanted to be aggressively pushing um, nation building on the world and obviously using Somalia, which was a mission that they'd inherited from his father, <laughs> um, as an example of this. And, of course, the, break, the great problem with that is that the Somali mission is so woefully misunderstood. Um, you know, the great, the great tragedy, I think most people know of that nowadays in this generation because of the Ridley Scott movie. Um, but frankly, if you watch Black Hawk Down, you'll you'll learn nothing about the politics involved uh, and the background to it or how and why these troops were there. You know, it's one thing I try and explain in, in Clinton's ground strategy is the fact that, you know, the original the original mission parameters, you know, Bush was getting briefed by Wolfowitz the first week in December, basically from the deputies committee at the NSC saying, all right, uh, if you want to do something bold with the end of your presidency, we can dispatch 28,000 Marines under a UN mandate to Somalia. We can distribute food, alleviate hunger, and get the hell out of Dodge before Clinton raises his hand to God and takes the oath of office. And they were like, okay, that sounds like a great idea. And then, of course, before they even shipped, the mission slips so that Clinton's team are suddenly inheriting you know, a massive deployment of troops, 28,000 troops in the Horn of Africa, but there's no U.S. national interest. The Clinton team haven't campaigned for it. They don't want to be there. They've got to deal with it. Um, how they deal with it is is basically to say, right, we'll we'll stay on on message. Bush had basically said the troops will go in and then they'll get the hell out. So you know, people forget Clinton withdrew 24 of the 28,000 troops in the spring of '93 on schedule. There's a welcome home ceremony at the White House, which Time and Newsweek cover in great detail. And the only, the only U.S. personnel left in country are support personnel. You know, they're not frontline troops. Um, and the nation building element to that program does not begin 
when the Americans are the dominant force. And it does not begin because of a push from the White House. It begins because Boutros Ghali basically wants to have a mission as the UN Secretary General and rebuild this country. You know, there's a whole load of issues with his background as a Coptic Egyptian, what's going on in Egypt. You know, there's, there's so many untold little stories there. And, and the simplistic concept that Somalia is an example of Bill Clinton's attempt to build a nation is it's, it's just, you know, what Biden call it? Malarkey. Yeah, absolutely. It's nonsense. <laughs> Well, uh, as long as we're on missions, let's uh, let's uh, take about one minute each for uh, uh, for uh, five five missions that the Clinton administration undertook or did not undertake. Uh, and so, okay. so, uh, so because we're can we, do them one, can we do them one at a time? One at a time. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. So, uh, so just uh, ahead of time, uh, those are going to be uh, the Balkan Wars, Yugoslavia, yes. uh, Serbia, and then uh, num- number one, the Israel-Palestine peace process. Number two. Uh, President yeah. Clinton's relationship with Boris Yeltsin and the management of post-Cold War Russia, number three. Yeah. Uh, and then as for the missions that were not undertaken, uh, Rwanda probably being the most controversial for number four. And the uh, the question of the Al-Qaeda attacks that started to blossom over the late yeah. 1990s for number five. Sure. So let's start, with, uh, let's start with the Balkan Wars then. Um, some have seen it as a prelude to what we did in Iraq. Some have seen it as a, uh, as a kind of antelude to what we did uh, in uh, in Iraq in 1991. What, what is your take and how did it work? Was it successful? Okay. Um, I know it's a big question. So take, no, take no, it. No, it's a big question. We've spent half an hour on that. So let's just, I mean, you said a minute, so I can't do it in a minute, but let's see what we can say. The Balkan war was a problem. Um, the Bush administration singularly didn't handle it, but let's not, you know, let me be seen as some American bashing European <laughs> lefty, which is the last thing I'd be accused of. Um, the, the, the newly formed European Union, which had come together in 1992, made it very, very explicit to the Bush team that they did not want the US getting involved in Bosnia. They made it very clear, this is a European problem, stay out of it. So Baker and uh, Eagle Burger, his, his replacement at State, said, all right, fair enough, get on with it. So the Americans were very happy not to get involved in what was a European problem. And before you know it, there are concentration camps on the European continent again. Um, Bill Clinton uh, carries on effectively George Bush's program, um, doesn't want to get involved. You know, there's lots of op-eds in the New York Times talking about a potential quagmire, and we all know what quagmire is is shorthand for. It's a shorthand code for this might be your Vietnam. Um, Clinton, of course, knows all about Vietnam, doesn't want to get involved, so he's happy not to. Um, the problem is, is, is that you know the, the credibility of the UN and of NATO and of the Western alliance comes under threat because of a lack of engagement. With Madeleine Albright ultimately warning Clinton that Bosnia threatens to be a cancer on his presidency, which of course is a famous expression, which many of your uh, readers and listeners will remember and attributed to John Dean at the height of the Watergate affair. So eventually. The problem you have is is that Warren Christopher is a really ineffectual Secretary of State, and he has come around to Europe in the first year of Clinton's presidency to gauge opinion about what the Europeans want the Americans to do in, in Bosnia. And he says, I am here in listening mode. The problem you have is that the Europeans have, have for years slated America and attacked America for being too arrogant. Now you have an American administration that wants to be um, – taking a new approach and listening. 
Um, the trouble is the Europeans don't know what to do with this. And Clinton undermined Christopher when he's in Europe, it must be said. But, you know, having interviewed uh, the British Defence Secretary at the time of Christopher's visit, you know, Europe, European leaders are like aghast because, you know, they knew what they got with Jim Baker. You know, Jim Baker was a tough talking, tall, swaggering Texan who spoke with the authority of his president. He was a conciliary to George Bush. Warren Christopher is a lawyer's lawyer, according to Madeleine Albright, which is not a, not a compliment. And so European leaders don't know what to make of this. Um, there was a sense that the White House is out of control and doesn't know quite what to do in the, in the Balkans. And it arguably isn't until the National Security Council takes charge under Tony Lake, um, about 18 months later on, and, you know, in an inverse of that famous policy with regard to gays in the military, comes to the European leaders and basically adopts a policy of tell, don't ask. Tell, don't ask. We are going to do this in the Bosnians. Get on board or get out of the way. And at that point, the European leaders are like, oh, OK, right. Now we know, OK, we might not agree with you, but at least there's a sense of order now. Um, uh, and so at that point, you know, uh, Holbrook gets involved, someone who should have been far greaterly and more greater involved in that administration from day one, frankly. And you get the, the, the Dayton, break the breakthrough at Dayton um, and, you know, Richard Holbrook's greatest hour, quite frankly, and for which he should have been far more uh, recognized uh, moving forward, in my opinion. Well, the, uh, it seems that the Balkans have been relatively quiet since the Clinton administration, with the exception of the 2007-2008 stuff in Kosovo. Uh, so it seems to me that that was reasonably a successful intervention operation. Um, I would agree. And, and of course, then you get, you get the, the later intervention in 1990 to Kosovo, but that's like a slightly different situation. And again, a, a NATO operation uh, along with the British because of, of Tony Blair. Um, that was a risky operation for Clinton in many ways. But, you know, I see it as a, as a continuation, um, you know, um, of, of what happened in, in Bosnia in 95 rather than necessarily a standalone operation. So uh, let's move on to Israel-Palestine. Uh, yeah, sure. One of uh, Clinton's major uh, initiatives was working on the Israel-Palestine peace uh, with, I, I would say, mixed results. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, let's, let's be honest about this. <laughs> well, Nobody's going to create the peace. That... Right, right, right. Sorry? Nobody's going to – no American president is going to be able to create the peace. Uh, it's something that... Well, no, but i got to be honest. You know, I, again, you know, it's – I think what's tragic is the extent to which Clinton's push for peace has been overlooked. You know, you think about the people who got Nobel Peace Prizes that were all around Bill Clinton. You know, the, the guys in South Africa got them. The guys in the Middle East got them. You know, uh, uh, Perez got one. You know, uh, you know uh, Arafat got one. The people in Northern Ireland got them. You know, all these people were brought together by Clinton, you know, for the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland. For the um, for the peace deals in the Middle East, Christ, Al Gore got one for global warming. Barack Obama got one because he's not George W. Bush. <laughs> you know, I think I think Bill Clinton's been really shafted, frankly, in terms of this. And it, it is indeed, you know, the, the, one of the, my concluding chapters in my next book is going to be called "No," you know, Clinton's legacy, no Nobel question mark, um, because you know he he does what is possible. I mean. It, it, you got to hand it to him. It's not his fault that his main partner for peace is assassinated by a, a crazy radical Jew who is ultimately opposed to dealing with the Palestinians. You know, just imagine, you know, 
the world without the assassination of Rabin. You know, I mean, people talk about turning points in history and, and, and the like. That assassination, to me, just took the air clean out of everything. Um, you know, that's not to say that one person can fix everything and there would have been challenges moving forward. You know, but Rabin's background, his, his strong role in the military, you know, his position of authority within, you know, um, you know the Labour Party movement in, in Israel and his great working relationship with Bill Clinton. You know, when, when he was shot and killed, you know, it was, you know, there's a lot of dispute about whether assassinations really change anything. Um, and people don't want to admit that they do, I think, because that opens up a whole can of worms. But I really have always believed that that was a turning point in a, a detrimental point within, you know, within that quest for peace, because you, you bring to power people who have lived in the, in the shadow of an assassination and they know what happens to peacemakers, you know. So the shadow of the assassin covers both Israel and the Palestinians, in my point. So you've clearly got Perez who comes to power. And I, and I know one shouldn't speak ill of the, of the recently deceased, but to me, Shimon Perez was always you know, a main, a minor player at the big level, quite frankly, uh, you know, uh, and also ran, um, you know, the, the giant of, the, of that era was clearly Rabin, and Perez was not going to be able to basically fill his shoes at that point. Then you get Bibi Netanyahu coming along, you know, which was an absolute disaster for peace in the Middle East, quite frankly. You know, then you get a brief hopeful moment right at the end of Clinton's term when Ehud Barak becomes leader of Israel. And again, you feel that, well, you know, now we've got an ally again, because, of course, Barak was being advised by a lot of the team who'd been around Bill Clinton's election campaign, people like James Carville, uh, Stan Greenfield, Bill, you know, the pollsters. Clinton's new third, t- third way deal team were around uh, Barak. And you thought, OK, this is great. So we've now got, you know, you know, third way centrist, left of centre leadership in the US, London and, and Tel Aviv. Um, this could lead to something. This could be really interesting. But the shadow of the assassin, which has um, tempered the quest for peace in Israel, of course, also extends to, Le- to, the, to the, the PLO because, of course, Arafat was well aware of what happened to leaders who signed peace deals with Israel. Thinking back to what happened to Sadat uh, after the Camp David deal, so it's no great surprise that when Clinton invites, you know, these leaders to Camp David, um, Arafat, remembering his history, is is ill disposed to sign a peace deal, which I'm sure he thought would basically be his death warrant. Um, and it's important to note that on the last day of Bill Clinton's presidency. Uh, Arafat phones him and says, you know, Mr. President, you were a great man. You were a great president. And Bill Clinton's response was, the hell I am. I'm a failure. And it's because of you. (laughs) You son of a bitch, effectively. And it's that Arafat goes from being the most um, most regular guest at the White House under Bill Clinton's administration. Nobody visited the White House more than Arafat in those eight years to become a persona non grata under George W. Bush, who absolutely cuts him off at the legs and says, you're a terrorist, you're not coming to the White House, <laughs> deal. You know, you know, people criticize W. for his roadmap for peace and his Middle Eastern strategy, but clearly he saw what the amount of time that Clinton had invested and the people he was having to invest in 
and realised that these just people weren't these people weren't honest about the quest for peace. If Arafat wanted a deal, the deal was on the table. The deal isn't going to be that good again, and hasn't been that good again. And you walk away from it. You know, are you going to be a revolutionary all your life, or are you going to be a statesman and basically sue for peace? And I think there was a sense that Clinton had gambled. He was criticised for pushing too hard for peace. Let's be honest about it. That maybe the the Palestinians and the Israelis weren't ready for peace. Well, you know, maybe. But, you know, you do what you can with the time you've got. And Clinton realised the clock was ticking on his time in office. And I think he thought, you know what, I've got a partner in Israel I can work with once more. Now, Netanyahu is out of the way. Maybe this is the last best chance for peace. And it probably was um, in a generation because, you know, things certainly haven't gotten any better. And despite Barack Obama's you know, forgotten pledge now to solve the Middle East in his first term in office. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, things haven't gotten any better. Um, well, with uh, with what's happening in Syria, Iraq, Libya, yeah, what's going to happen just, in Egypt, I don't think anyone's yeah. going to be focusing on Israel-Palestine anytime soon. So God bless yeah. them. We'll see. We'll see. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So let's move on to let's move on to Russia. Uh, and I know you're you're running out of time because uh, you have an appointment. Don't worry about so. it. It's all right. This, that's all right. I'm just keeping an eye on the, on the door. But it's oh, fine. All right. Yeah, Russia, so uh, so Russia. How did Clinton do? Uh, the Bill and Boris partnership. Um, a lot of people would argue that, uh, I mean, Putin especially would argue that the collapse of the Soviet Union and the liberalization of Russia was a great geopolitical disaster. Uh, and uh, some would argue that the pushing of NATO and the EU all yeah. the way up to the borders of Russia uh, provoked the backlash and resentment yeah. that we're seeing nowadays. What, what say you? Okay, so what I say is this, is that Clinton was having to deal with a borderline, no, not a borderline, a total alcoholic in the Kremlin. Um, someone who, by all accounts, showed up at the Bush administration before Clinton took office, demanding to see the president, even though he was only at that point the leader of Russia. Someone who, anecdotally, I understand, was once found wandering the South Lawn of the White House during the Clinton years in his underwear trying to order a pizza. Um, someone who, you know, was a very, very... Um, Odd individual, but someone who Bill Clinton liked and got on very, very well with. You know, there's a very warm relationship there. And, you know, Bill Clinton, you know, one of the most interesting books about the Clinton years was Strobe Tolbert's memoir, The Russia Hand. And it talks about how, despite the fact that Bill Clinton doesn't want to be a foreign policy president, what he sees is the need to make Russia a going concern effectively um, in, you know, a very short time period. He realizes the potential risk of a collapsing Soviet Russian economy and does as much as he can. You know, he realizes and concedes that there is just no appetite or money left for a modern day Marshall Plan to Russia, but does what he can to support Russia by, you know, trying to bring it into the family of nations through the partnership for peace deal with, with NATO, for example. And, you know, by... By not um, humiliating Russia on the world stage, by trying to deal with it as a partner and not as an also-ran. Now, there's no doubt that there were people in the administration, and I've interviewed several of them, and Charlie Kupchan is a classic example, who believes that, as you rightly point out, pushing NATO membership up to the Urals effectively was a mistake. Um, It's important to note that that was not done overnight, and it was done um, on a rolling basis, um, obviously, the first states, the first nations that were brought into NATO were, I got this right, uh, Hungary, the Czech, Czech Republic, and Poland, um, which were, you know, as far removed from the, the Russian border as you could probably get at that point. 
you know, the idea will move it eastward uh, on a rolling basis. Um, you know, Yeltsin pushed back against it in his 96 campaign for re-election, but really, whilst nobody thought he'd be happy about it, you know, the Americans made it very, very clear that no nation, i.e. Russia, would be able to veto this, and they couldn't. Um, now, do these things help propel Yeltsin, uh, Yeltsin out and then Putin in? Uh, maybe. Um, it certainly gives Putin some pushback, but I'd suggest that, you know, the Russian leadership has had no greater friend in the White House since the collapse of the Cold War and the end of the Cold War than Bill Clinton, who clearly wanted to work with the Russian leadership, maintain its level of dignity and introduce political and market reform, um, which, you know, they did to an extent, except the problem is, is that the oligarchs took over and basically monopolized the markets. I don't think you can blame Bill Clinton for the fact that a bunch of crooks around a relatively weak Russian leader, you know, monopolized and took advantage of the system. Uh, we can go on about Russia for a long time, but let's move on to uh, yeah. on to the more controversial issues of that. Um, and by the way, I would like to uh, like to talk to you about this in, in greater depth sometime later on. But uh, but uh, we'll move on to Rwanda. Um, yeah. So Clinton has stated explicitly that Rwanda was one of his greatest regrets as president of the United States. My question to you is, is there anything we could have done in Rwanda? Is there anything he could have done? Is there anything the president yeah. of the United States could have worked on to preclude it or to prevent it as it was happening? As seems no. to be the general liberal international case. I can give you one word answer to that, which is no, in my opinion. Um, I can, you know, we can sit here and... and beat our chests and say, oh, it was terrible, terrible, terrible. And, you know, from a, you know, European perspective, say, oh, the Americans should have done more. And Samantha Powell won a Pulitzer Prize for saying as much. And it's like, great. But as she's found out since going to work for the federal government, it's an awful lot easy. It's very easy to stand on the side and, sh- and throw stones and rocks and, you know, beat up the U.S. without realizing what's involved. Um, let's be honest about this. Um, what happened in Rwanda was an internal dispute between two tribes who historically have killed each other and don't like each other at a very base level. And when when the killings began, there was actually a State Department report released that basically said, you know what, this is just what they do. This is what happens in that part of Africa. They kill each other on a regular basis. This isn't worth intervening over because it's not going to get any worse than it did. Um, clearly it did, and the killings grew at an exponential rate. The problem you have is that by the time that becomes clear, it's too late to really do anything. You know, we need to put this into the, into the context of, you know, all too often these things are looked at in isolation, and you can't do that because if it was just, you know, you know nothing had ever happened in Africa, and then all of a sudden this happens, then you could say, oh, you know, maybe there would have been the political opportunity to intervene. But, of course, we need to see this through the prism of Somalia. You know, Clinton had only just had, it, had his hat handed to him um, by a Congress, which was still at that point, don't forget, under Democratic Party control. So this isn't even about a Democrat-Republican standoff. Rep- Democrats in the White House are furious at the White House. Sorry, Democrats in the Congress are furious at the White House over what's happened with Somalia, rightly or wrongly. There is simply no political will, and Clinton is not prepared to expend political capital going back into Africa when he's just got out to put American troops in the middle of a civil war where there's no national interest, uh, nothing to be gained, everything to be lost, 
both internationally and domestically, when, of course, Hillary's trying to get health care through. And, you know, all that would have happened is you'd have had American casualties coming back through Dover Air Force Base, as well as continuing tribal warfare between the Hutsis and the Tutus anyway. You know, there was, there was nothing to be gained at all. And it's nice that Bill Clinton can turn around and say, yes, it was one of the, my greatest regrets. And I'm sure it was. But there was absolutely, in my opinion, nothing that could have been done about it realistically. By the time you think about the, 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 how long it takes to mobilize and get enough troops into country to have made a difference, you know, under the, the Powell doctrine effectively, to have got, he was at that point, um, he just left as, as, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Under that rubric, you know, the, the, the tens of thousands of troops you would have needed to put into country, Clinton could not have got congressional support for that under the War Powers Act. And, you know, by the time they got there, it would have been too late. Now, that might seem a terrible thing to say. And I understand that. But, you know, you ask me my opinion. That's what the realist opinion is. Not an idealist, yes, it would have been wonderful if, but a hard-headed, could America, should America have done anything else? Could they? Possibly, possibly an absolute outside, you know, they might have been able to put some troops on the ground and, and had American casualties to add to the Rwandan casualties. But would that have made any difference? Not in my opinion. And I think that's something the world needs to hear as these things increase with uh, with alarming frequency in the world that we're increasingly going into in the early 21st century. Um, so last uh, last thing I want to focus on is, uh, of course, the war on terror, which was in its very natal, undeclared stages at the end of the Clinton yes. presidency. But there were four major attacks on Americans uh, in the, in that time frame. There was Nairobi, there was Cobra, Tower, Cobra Towers, uh, there was the World Trade Center in 1993, and there was the USS yeah. in the Gulf of Aden. Um, a lot of critics have argued that uh, President Clinton should have seen 9-11 coming. Now, I don't think that's a very fair argument at all. Okay. But uh, is, uh, I wanted to know from your perspective, is it reasonable to think that there was more the Clinton administration could have done in uh, combating terrorism in the bud while, uh, while, uh, while all these other things were happening around the world? If you wonder why I'm grinning from ear to ear, which your listeners and readers won't be able to see, but I can tell you that I am, it's because... My first book was called Clinton's Grand Strategy, and it looked very broadly at what Clinton tries to do in the new post-Cold War era. Uh, my second book has been called Hillary Rising, which is talking about how, how Hillary becomes the Democratic Party nominee and what, how that might influence what she does as president. My next book, which I'm working on right now for Lynn Ryder, which should be out hopefully 2018, is I look called, forward to reading it. It's called Clinton's Grand, it's called Clinton's War on Terror, and it focuses on exactly the question you just asked. Um, I, I would go further. Yes, there were those attacks, um, uh, during the, the administration, but there were more. Um, I, I could add to that the attack on the CIA employees, uh, in Virginia, you know, within days of Bill Clinton becoming president. You know, Clinton's presidency is bookended, if you will, by attacks on a trade center. You know, the, the unsuccessful but still fatal bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993, which happened so early in his administration that when the phones ring in the basement of the White House um, and Dick Clark picks that phone up, it's still labeled as Brent Scowcroft, uh, which, of course, had been Bill uh, George Bush's national security advisor. And his first thought is, why the hell is Brent Scowcroft phoning me? Of course, it wasn't. It was Tony Lake who got Brent Scowcroft's old office the phone system hadn't even been updated at that point. Um, and then, of course, 
you know, that happens within days, if not weeks, of Bill Clinton becoming presidency. And then, of course, you have the, the tragedy of 9-11, what, eight, nine months after he leaves office. Um, it was very, very easy and understandable about why the Bush administration wanted to push back blame for 9-11 into the Clinton years. I get that. It's understandable from a political point of view. But the idea that the Clinton administration was doing nothing or not doing enough with regard to counterterrorism is, in my opinion, totally flawed. Um, the Clinton administration, from a very, very early stage of its time in office, um, recognizes the threat of, of terrorism. Um, it does what it can with what it has available to it to go after terrorists. One of the fascinating things about it, though, is the extent to which it doesn't get the support you might imagine it would have done from, oh, shall we say, Republicans in Congress who believe it's a smokescreen for um, Clinton's own indiscretions. You know, that movie Wag the Dog comes out, causes all sorts of problems for Clinton because, of course, now his opponents can just say, well, you're wagging the dog. The movie is, you know, life is imitating art, which is imitating life, you know, and that's a problem. Uh, he can't get adequate support from the military who don't want to engage because they don't really see the great threat uh, from uh, terrorist organizations. Who do you focus upon? Um, it's important to recognize that, you know, we, you know, we look back now with hindsight and say, well, you know, look what was going to happen. But, you know, Al Qaeda is an expression which doesn't appear in Clinton era publications. There's reference to bin Laden's networks. But this idea that there's this all-powerful spectre-like organization akin to the Bond movies, which is out there, you know, think about what, you know, I still look back now and I think about, see these interviews that, you know, Cheney was doing with Tim Russert on Meet the Press, you know, these, these artists' impressions of caves with, you know, they look like the, this, they look like the, you know, Blofeld's lair from, you know, inside a volcano. It's a, you know, it's like Dr. Evil, you know, but this isn't funny. But this was being perpetuated on the American people from the vice president down. It was just remarkable. You know, we in Europe looked at this and laughed because there's just no evidence of any of this nonsense. Um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> Clinton basically does what he can. Um, you know, he, he delivers keynote addresses upon the dangers of terrorism. He speaks at the UN on terrorism. You know, he uses these addresses to try and draw attention to the growing storm, effectively, which is out there. You know, he he initiates the rendition program. You know, he, he, that gets referred to as a new art form by the Clinton administration. I remember I mean, when rendition broke and people started talking about it under W, like it was new and like, oh, my gosh, isn't it awful? You know, I was doing my PhD at that point. I was thinking, this isn't new. Clinton was doing it years ago. And was using it against the, you know, what became known as the Al Qaeda network before, you know, long before anybody had heard of Bin Laden, for example. Um, rendition starts under Clinton as a as a proper policy. The drone technology, which Bush inherits and develops because of increasing technology. Okay, there was no Hellfire missiles on those things when Clinton was president because the technology wasn't there, but. You know, the development of the drone technology program, which we now take for granted, again, begins under Clinton. Um, ironically enough, you know, his first CIA director, who we did not get on with, Jim Wolsey, um, needs to be given some credit for this because he went to, um, you know, a demonstration of these things and basically on the spot said, we'll have some of those for the CIA. Thank you very, very much. Um, you know, and 
the administration in the last years in office has a, you know, as a submarine stationed in, you know, the region with drones flying over Afghanistan, looking for the guy we now know of as Bin Laden on the basis that, okay, the drones can't take him out because they're not armed. But the idea was going to be that a drone would signal back to an attack submarine, which would give the coordinates for a cruise missile attack to take this guy out at the neck long before he could commit 9-11. And guess what? That submarine got called off station, you know, as soon as Bush becomes president, because there is no faith in the Clinton foreign policy with regard to terrorism under the incoming Bush team. They get briefed about it. Sandy Berger, Clinton's NS National Security Advisor, briefs Condi, the incoming National Security Advisor, and says, Bin Laden's out there, he's a threat, terrorism is something you need to take seriously. Um, the Bush team are warned. Um, they don't take it seriously, and they start their own internal review, you know, which reports back, guess when? Late summer, you know, early August 19, uh, 2001, right before 9-11, effectively, and which basically corroborates what the Clinton team have said all along, you know, so it's it's politics gets in the way. Would that have happened if Gore had been elected? I don't think you'd have had the pushback against the existing policy. That is not to say that Gore could have prevented 9-11, but there would have been an increase and a continuing seriousness, I think, about the threat of terrorism. It was a lovely little story I'd like to tell you just before I, I finish, Aubrey, which is a story I tell my students, which is a true story. The um, the president of the United States is in the Oval Office, and he is briefed by his legal advisors with regard to the drone, with regard to rendition. And because the president is not a foreign policy guru, um, he calls in his vice president, who is on the ticket and in the White House because of his foreign policy experience prior to that office. And he, the, the president says to his um, uh, uh, legal advisor, OK, v, brief the vice president upon what you just told me about rendition, because I'm not sure about the legality of it. So he does. And at the end of the briefing, the president says, OK, Mr. Vice President, what do you think about rendition? And the vice president says, hey, the guy's a terrorist. Go grab his ass. It's a no brainer. You know, and at that point, I said to my students, right, OK, who have I just described? And everybody says, well, it's President Bush. He's got no foreign policy experience. And uh, and Cheney, who, of course, is. And Cheney's a, Cheney's a tough nut. And, of course, he'd use that kind of language and say rendition's a good thing. And I said, that's great, except you're wrong. That happened under Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore. And that, I think, demonstrates the total misperception about that administration, which is that it was woolly and wussy and not prepared to engage in um, dynamic foreign policy. It was, but in its second term, it was massively handicapped by the ongoing um, impeachment trial, which sucked all the... The, the life and the political opportunity uh, out of that administration to a point where it was having to fight for its own survival. And that negated, you know, taking the fight outward, I think. It was all about let's just stay in office and use our political capital to stay in office, not use political capital to go out and push progressive policy. Right. And right. I think that was a major, major challenge for it during its second term. I have uh, one last question before you go. I know you. I know you have yeah, to go sure. shortly, but um, so uh, so for, first off, what I'm going to take out of this interview is uh, two two main things. Number one, I don't think most of our listeners and readers previously had this idea. I certainly didn't that uh, President Clinton was as hard nosed and realistic a national interest sort of president as is possible, uh, or as he as he was. 
Um, and I think you've done a really good job of explaining uh, how he had a bunch of constraints, had a few imperatives, and navigated yeah. through a changing world dealing with that. So I, I, I'm really grateful that we had this conversation, and that's, uh, that's me too. Up. I've enjoyed it. Um, the second thing is uh, the sheer impact of personalities on history. I mean, you talked about oh, yeah. uh, the assassinations. You talked about Boris Yeltsin, but I think that's uh, yeah. that's other interesting stuff too. Um, now, full disclosure, I am an old line Richard Nixon Republican. So Bill okay. Clinton is one of my favorite Democratic presidents, and um, and uh, it's uh, it's I think he provides at least the way you described provides a good model for things moving forward. Now my last question for you is, um, assuming that Hillary Clinton becomes the next president of the United States, which I think is a higher than likely probability at this moment, um, yep. what can she learn from the, or is there a model that Bill Clinton provided? That will be useful to the next administration's foreign policy, or has the world changed so much since 1999 and 2000 that uh, that it's not useful anymore? And we need to totally rethink things. Great question, um, and, and really well framed. Um, here's here's what I think. I think that yes, I think Hillary will win, and I think Donald Trump has made it ridiculously easy for him. I think <laughs> a moderate a moderate centrist Republican would have beaten Hillary Clinton. This cycle, As, you know, you look at the cycles of U.S. elections, you know, with, with, with really only two exceptions, and that would be H.W. and Carter. The American electorate usually goes two terms for each party on a swinging basis. And on that basis, you would imagine that, a, you know, a moderate Republican could have could have won um, the presidency this year. That being said, um, if Hillary is elected, to my mind, she is the last chief, but she represents the end of a cycle that begins with Bill Clinton and ends with his wife. You know, the, you know, the, the, the new Democratic project ends with Hillary Clinton. Um, and, you know, there, there is no, there's no heir, fundamentally. Um, don't, let's not even think about Chelsea, OK? That's, that's not where I want to go. The new Democrat project that Bill Clinton initiates, um, that Al Gore would have continued in office if he had been, become president, that, that, that Obama has sort of tinkered with will be brought back to the light, I think, under, under Hillary. In other words, a moderate, centrist, um, national interest-focused foreign policy. You know, anybody – you talk about being a Republican, a Nixon Republican. I have to say, conservatives have nothing to fear from Hillary Clinton, in my opinion. You know, she was born to Republican parents. She was a Republican until she went to, comp, to, to, to law school, effectively – She's still very cautious. She's still very conservative with a small C. She is not the raving liberal, lesbian, children-eating, <laughs> you know, figure of hate that she's portrayed by the Breitbart crowd. So a Hillary Clinton presidency will learn a lot. She's been a national security president. Hold on two seconds. <laughs> I'm just going to need to do two seconds. Come on, come in. Sorry about that. No um, worries, though. That's a so great quote, by the way. Just, I think just, we're going to call it "Children Eater" uh, for the name of the podcast. Just kidding. Just kidding. Yeah, there we go. There we go. Um, you know, she is someone who is going to. You know, she's been at the heart of U.S. foreign policy in many ways, going back to '92. She had an under under underappreciated role in her husband's presidency. Um, uh, in many ways, a co-president. You know, she was, you know, someone who was subsequently, um, you know, taken a lead role in national security affairs on the on the armed services committee, uh, secretary of state. 
um, someone who uh, was clearly involved in the decision to go after bin Laden and uh, the neck effectively. You know, this is someone who was acknowledged as being further to the right in terms of a hawkish position than Obama, um, more hawkish probably even, than even her husband, I think. Um, you know, I think if you want, if, you know, you didn't ask this directly, but, you know, I often get asked this and it kind of alludes back to what you want. Who is the role model for Hillary uh, in terms of foreign policy? And the answer is Madeleine Albright. Madeleine Albright to me, you know, schools Hillary Clinton in foreign policy when Hillary is first lady and Madeleine Albright is America's first female sex stat. That kind of a hawkish approach, the no-nonsense approach to the world um, that Madeleine Albright brings to the, to the Clinton administration when she has, quite frankly, more balls than any of the men around her. Um, he were a lot of little grey men in many respects. Um, is, is, is exemplary of, of the way I think Hillary will approach the presidency. Well, Which is I, a Republican, you should be very happy with. Yes. You know? I mean, there's nothing, frankly, for Republicans or conservatives to fear in Hillary Clinton. Um, she will govern as she has lived from the exact centre, because that's where she's comfortable. And it's only Bernie Sanders who's dragged a kick and a scream into the left to get the nomination. It's not where she was comfortable. It's not where she wanted to run. It's not where she's trying to position herself now. And it's not where she'll govern from as president. It's it's interesting. I have slight disagreements, but not many. But th that we'll leave that for another conversation. Professor Boyce, thank, like thank you very much. Thank you very much for right. uh, sitting down with me. I appreciate this. I'll keep in touch, and I'll let you know once we have the interview transcribed. It was a great interview. I appreciate it a lot, and I'm sure our readers will like it too. So thank you very much, I so, and yeah. I appreciate this. All right.